0: It's the Carson McCullers Center's Weekly Weave Me. This is the first of two episodes based on our interview with quilter and former McCullers Center director Kathy Fussell and her husband, artist and folklorist Fred Fussell. A quilter for more than 50 years, Kathy Fussell maintains a studio in Columbus, Georgia, where she produces both hand-quilted and machine-quilted pieces. In 2011, Kathy retired from a 28-year career teaching literature and composition, first at the high school level and later at Columbus State University, where for the last eight years of her tenure, in addition to teaching, she directed the Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians. Since her retirement, Kathy has been able to devote herself full-time to quilting. She particularly enjoys incorporating literary and geographical themes into her quilts. Kathy's husband, Fred Fussell, is a writer, folklorist, curator, artist, and photographer. He has curated, among other exhibitions, the exhibits at the Ma Rainey House Museum in Columbus, Georgia. Kathy and Fred are also the parents of Jake Xerxes Fussell, a singer and guitarist who plays folk and blues music with a focus on traditional Southern folk songs, and Coulter Fussell, a textile artist and painter living and working in Water Valley, Mississippi.
1: This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content.
0: All right. Well, um, like I said, I wanted to talk to you guys some about the arts and Columbus. And uh, the first thing, the first question is, you live in Swift Mill, one of the many textile mills in this town that has been converted into residential and multi-purpose uses, like the one I live in, the Eagle in Phoenix, Um, and you both live and do creative work in that space. Uh, The studios of Bo Bartlett and Betsy Eby are on either side of you, I guess, Yeah. and I think Najee Dorsey, didn't I hear that he's back uh, using his studio? He's not
2: here anymore. He came and went and came and went, but he's not Uh, here now. Okay, but, you know, well, he, here is uh, Henry Kramer.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Carson wrote some about the mills uh, and the mills and or mill workers figure in several of her works. And I wonder if y'all could talk about how the cotton mill culture fits into the culture of the arts in this town, or, or does it?
2: Let me start by saying that the cotton mill schedule used to determine the daily schedule in this town and the annual schedule in this town, you know, the shifts were seven to three and three to 11 and 11 to seven. And I can remember, uh, and I grew up in Buena Vista, 35 miles away, so I didn't grow up in Columbus proper. But when we ever had any bad weather uh, on the television, you would hear, oh, such and such, seven to three shift at Swift will be delayed today or 11 to seven at Eagle and Phoenix will not run tonight and um then there was the mill whistles you know the whistle blew every right. at every shift change and then on an annual basis the mills had uh when did they have off they had off the week of the fourth of july two weeks
3: usually in the first two weeks of july and the first two in the second two weeks of december
2: yeah so the unpaid leave yeah unpaid leave uh but it meant that town looked different and that people who had you know, this, the daily schedule wasn't the same as it had been when the mills were operating. So that didn't have anything much to do with the arts, but it, it's a little... And, and, of course, there were these big, huge buildings and smokestacks all over town. And uh, the mills just really defined the, the, the schedule and the landscape of Columbus. As far as the arts go, indirectly, the mill had a huge influence on just the whole culture of the community one little part that I think some people don't realize is that there was a big influx of people from lower Alabama from LA from down Mm -hmm. home to -hmm. work in the mills in the 1930s when everybody was people on the front the boll weevil had visited and people in lower Alabama were desperate for work and just throngs of people moved up the river to Columbus so they brought that lower Alabama culture with them and it still you know, there's still some of that in Columbus. People talk about going down home, and they talk about going to Dothan. And so, you know, when you got a group of people moving in, and they're bringing their music with them, and 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 their stories with them, I certainly think that that influx of people from downriver uh, had a big influence on the folk culture of Columbus. I don't know the, about the fine art culture, but the folk culture. Mm-hmm. And then yet another way to think about the mill culture and its impact on the arts in Columbus. You know, art comes out of oppressed and repressed people. Mm-hmm. And and we certainly had with the military and mill workers here in town, we had people who and <laughs> women, we had people who were oppressed and repressed. And uh, that's the stuff of art.
0: I think you already uh, presented a kind of answer uh, to this, Kathy, talking about oppressed people produce art. But one of the questions that I've asked a couple of people uh, Jonathan Samuel Eddy, Natalia Tomeskin, you know, both of them, people, artists who grew up in Columbus. It's amazing uh, to me the number of writers, artists, musicians who came out of Columbus. I mean, yeah. your whole family. <laughs> for instance. Uh, but, you know, Carson McCullers, Amy Sherald, Alma Thomas, Ma Rainey, Darby and Tarleton, Blind Tom Wiggins, Nunnally Johnson, Chet yeah. Atkins, Bo Bartlett. And then if we just moved, you know, uh, yeah, that's, that's just awesome. Columbus proper. There's Eddie Martin and Precious Bryant and Butch Anthony, all that. So what do you think? Is Is Columbus exceptional in that way? Well, I don't
2: know. I think you'd have to look at the stats of other towns, but, you know, If you look on uh, Google, on Wikipedia, you could do that. You could compare it a little bit if you can trust the information on Wikipedia where they have the notable people at the bottom. It does seem that we have more art people than we do uh, athletes or even businessmen, even though we've got some significant businessmen from here. It does Mm -hmm. seem that we have more uh, people in the arts. We think that some of this goes back to real early days and the time when this was the Western frontier for a long, long time. And it's been a very diverse place for a long, long time.
3: Well, there's never been a time in the history of Columbus as a city or even before Columbus when there wasn't a great diversity of cultures here in the region and in the immediate area. I mean, even in the very early days, there were people in and out from all over the place. From the very beginning of of the town, I've always imagined that in, say, in the 1830s, the mid-1830s, 1840, you could walk down the main street of Columbus and probably hear a half dozen or more different languages being spoken because we we were the head of navigation for the river. There were overland passages to and from the town, and uh, people were coming and going for all kinds of different reasons, and uh, I think that really played into the complexity in the, in the early times, and that continued throughout the years.
2: And then George, I, I don't know if you know who George Mitchell is, but he's a blues yep. Yeah, Yeah, and you know, he was uh, somebody who recorded extensively in Mississippi in the 60s. And he lived here in, Col- George is from Atlanta. He's a good friend of ours, but he lived in Columbus in the 60s and recorded a little bit here in Columbus in the 60s. And then Fred hired him to be the field worker for the Chattahoochee Legacy Project at the museum in the 80s. And George was pretty much blown away by the blues, still around Columbus in the 80s. And uh, he's one of the first people I knew of to recognize, uh, you know, sort of the Chattahoochee blues style as something distinctive from Chicago blues and Mississippi blues. And I'm not the blues scholar, I can't speak no, to No,
3: and, and it is a very, you know, was and still is in, in a way a very distinctive kind of uh, blues music. It's more playful and less uh, down and out. Uh, a lot of play party music, a lot of dance music, uh, songs that go with uh, action, with people moving. W- one of the things that's not well known at all is that there was a pretty close connection between the music here in the Chattahoochee Valley and that along the Georgia coast where there were fife and drum bands for mm-hmm. instance. And of course those show up in Mississippi too later, but they were here earlier. There were certain kinds of music that that came along that sort of were identified with certain mm-hmm. holidays, uh, New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, Christmas music, uh, but not necessarily religious Christmas <laughs> music, it was more frivolous kinds of uh, stuff.
0: Do you think Carson was exposed to that sort of thing? Yeah. I've always been curious about this.
2: Yeah, I think she was exposed to some of it, probably not, uh, not a lot of it, but some of it, yeah. I think she has been.
0: Why would you think not a lot of it, Kathy?
2: Well, because I don't know, well, for one thing, she wasn't black and a lot of it is mm-hmm. in the black community. Mm-hmm. And she lived in the city. And a lot of this is going on in, out in the countryside. Carson grew up in the country club neighborhood, you know, she grew up over there in the insulated neighborhood where the woman who said, I don't know where Lula Carson got her characters. I just don't think she was, and I don't think she and her family socialized outside their family a lot.
0: Well, Uh, I have a couple of questions about that. Well, one is I I have recently, you know, learned to play uh, on guitar, not well as I, as with all the songs that I play, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) I have uh, recently learned to play Columbus Stockade Blues. Correct me if I'm wrong, Fred, but I think that the date on that, the recording is like 1924. That sounds right, yeah. And I mean, that was a song. So, so Carson would have been a little girl when that song was first, I guess, written and recorded, you know, during Tarleton and Darby's heyday. And then, of course, in the folk craze of the 50s, late 50s and, and early 60s, I mean everybody recorded it from the Kingston trio to Bob Dylan and Doc Watson and Willie Nelson. I mean, I, I just I'm just curious. She had to have
2: heard it. She had to have heard it. And you know, they performed down in the band shell at Lake Bottom at one point.
0: Right. And oh, about that, But that was that was much later, I think, yeah, wasn't I it? Think so, yeah, Yeah. But I was just always curious to me what Carson would have thought about that. I mean, she, you know, she got that musical training and I think her mother wanted her to be involved in the fine arts. And clearly she had a real interest in that. I mean, she was reading the Russians and, uh, you know, had a great love of classical music and all of that. But I've just always been curious about.
3: I'd, I'd say she was astute. And she probably uh, made it her business to kind of sneak around and see some of it. The... Yeah. I remember uh, Norman Rothschild telling me that he and Carson would sneak over to Phoenix City just to see what was going on. You know, and if she was doing that, and she was going to the fair, particularly or maybe specifically to take a look at the freaks at the fair, uh, she, you know, she was uh, searching, she was seeking that kind of stuff out. And what about you, Kathy? What do you want to read?
2: I want to read, it was the year when Frankie thought about the world, from of okay. the Wedding. It was the year when Frankie thought about the world, and she did not see it as a round school globe with the countries neat and different colored. She thought of the world as huge and cracked and loose and turning a thousand miles an hour. The geography book at school was out of date. The countries of the world had changed. Frankie read the war news in the paper, but there were so many foreign places and the war was happening so fast that sometimes she did not understand. It was the summer when Patton was chasing the Germans across France and they were fighting too in Russia and Saipan. She saw the battles and the soldiers, but there were too many different battles and she could not see in her mind the millions and millions of soldiers all at once. She saw one Russian soldier, dark and frozen with the frozen gun in Russian snow, the single Jap with slanted eyes on a jungle island gliding among green vines, Europe and the people hung in trees and the battleships on the blue oceans, four motor planes and burning cities and a soldier in a steel war helmet laughing. Sometimes these pictures of the war the world whirled in her mind and she was dizzy, A long time ago, she had predicted that it would take two months to win the whole war, but now she did not know. She wanted to be a boy and go to the war as a Marine. She thought about flying airplanes and winning gold medals for bravery, but she could not join the war. And this made her sometimes feel restless and blue. She decided to donate blood to the Red Cross. She wanted to donate a quarter week and her blood would be in the veins of Australians and fighting French and Chinese all over the whole world and it would be as though she were close-kin to all these people. She could hear the army doctors saying that the blood of Frankie Adams was the reddest and the strongest blood that they had ever known. And she could picture ahead in the years after the war meeting the soldiers who had her blood. (laughs) And they would say that they owed their life to her and they would not call her Frankie, they would call her Adams. But this plan for donating her blood to the war did not come true. The Red Cross would not take her blood She was too young. Frankie felt mad with the Red Cross and left out of everything. The war and the world were too fast and big and strange. To think about the world for very long made her afraid. She was not afraid of Germans or bombs or Japanese. She was afraid because in the war they would not include her and because the world seemed somehow separate from herself.
0: Why that uh, passage, Kathy?
2: Well, I I just, I like Frankie, (laughs) I just like it, but I also thought it was pertinent. I mean, right now, the world is all askew and askance, Mm -hmm. and here we are trying to find ourselves in it, trying to observe it and trying to find our place in it, and I thought it was timely. I mean, here, 80, 80 years later,
0: it still speaks. Well, you know, that's been one of the themes uh, of these interviews for the podcast that we talked about. Carlos, Susan, I talked about it a lot, how relevant Carson McCullers is right now.
2: Yes, in terms of race and gender and worldview
0: yeah. and
2: class, even though we don't talk about class as much as we need to.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's she absolutely She addressed true.
2: those issues of race, class, and gender way ahead of, and that's one reason, I mean, that's the main reason people in Columbus can't Uh, accept her as readily as they might. Uh, You know, she was addressing these issues that she was ahead of her time, and they were issues that were very difficult for people to look at, to think about.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCuller Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullers' 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, Technical Director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Kathy Fussell's reading from the member of the wedding is in the Library of America's The Collected Works of Carson McCullers. The music you heard during the reading was Platero by Eduardo Sain de la Maza, performed live in Legacy Hall by Dr. Andrew Zone on September 25th, 2020.